1: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: the irish times business podcast in association with irish life eight of the top 10 irish companies choose to do business with
1: us we know irish life we are irish life
2: Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran on Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I was joined in studio by a panel of Irish Times journalists to discuss issues such as Ireland being labelled as a tax haven to the latest twists and turns in Brexit. And more bad news for passengers with Irish ferries. But we'll begin, as usual, with a roundup of some of the main stories of the week. And I'm joined in studio by Peter Hamilton. Peter, you're very welcome. Uh, A busy week now for revenue uh, with tax defaulters, the latest tax defaulters uh, list. uh, A crackdown on homeowners letting rooms through accommodation website Airbnb. That's right,
3: yeah. A few different issues raising their head this week for revenue. Those two that you just mentioned. And, of course, collection on, on dirt. Uh, the tax uh, down for revenue but we'll start with airbnb first mm. of all and uh, last year there were around 23,000 homeowners in Ireland who earned around 115 million euro between from them. from between them from airbnb so around uh, five grand each um, so in airbnb in 2015 started supplying information to the revenue on what their homeowners were earning and so it therefore is not much of a surprise that last week uh Revenue wrote to homeowners to tell them that their tax affairs are under investigation. So it was clear for quite a while that this wasn't covered under rent a room. Some homeowners now may face a tax bill and they may well be joining the tax defaulters list. Yeah, now there is a rent
2: a room scheme whereby if you let out a room, rent a room in your house, you're allowed to earn so much uh, per month tax free essentially. Right but Airbnb uh, is being treated somewhat differently.
3: Yeah, Airbnbbooking.com. It doesn't cover those short, short-term short rentals. Mm. It's for longer-term
2: uh, tenants. So that's the issue with Airbnb. And do we have any sense of how many people are are not declaring their income using Airbnb in Ireland but not declaring their income?
3: No, we don't, to be honest. And I, I suppose the, the thing about this is that Airbnb say that uh, the majority of their homeowners would be earning less than kind of 5,000 mm. so. There are some that would skew that figure by by earning masses of money. One would expect that they are declaring everything. So it may be those people on the smaller scale that and they just think forgotten or whatever.
2: Yeah, or they just think, Asher, I'm only letting it out a few times a year. Sure, nobody will notice. Um, exactly. I'll get away with it. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. all right. Well, they better be careful. Um, now, tax defaulters. Uh, we have this list on a quarterly basis. 9.4 million in settlements agreed with 61 taxpayers. Mm. Court action against companies uh, generated another 1.55 million in fines imposed. Um, uh, Perhaps not as uh, sexy in terms of numbers as previous lists, but uh, nonetheless, some interesting... Uh, people have emerged yeah, th- on it.
3: There were some interesting people on it. They, they, there was a priest, a retired priest, but the, the, the largest settlement was with the retired consultant obstetrician Valerie Donnelly and uh, they she settled for £1.865 million. Now, I, I thought what was interesting about this is that Revenue were saying that the published details are only a fraction of the money raised by Revenue through their audits and investigations. And this, of, of course, if, if you... Uh, my understanding is if you come to a deal with Revenue... Uh, it, it's it's not
2: published. Um, and if you're below a certain threshold, it has to be above a certain threshold. Yeah. I forget what that threshold so, so, is. So but I think it was something <clears> like 100, and, was it 115 million was raised in, in total? But only, uh, the named ones were only of the order of 9.4, so, or sorry, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and
3: audits in to the tune of 12, 1,200 audits, more than 1,200 audits, I think, uh, so, so it's fairly significant work going on by revenue and this is where yeah. they'll, they'll claw back some of that money that they are going to lose uh, from the uh, deposit interest retention tax. So the collection on, on that uh, is down 31% on 2016. They collected
2: 118 million uh, in 2017. This is a tax on the interest that people make on their savings. yeah, and, and Because the interest rates have been so low uh, over the last uh, number of years, the tax take is is low as well.
3: Exactly, uh, it's and so lower. it is indeed. And, and now there has been a drop in the dirt rate from forty one to thirty nine percent, but that isn't responsible for it. Uh, they're suggesting because that rate in twenty thirteen, well, it was thirty three percent then.
2: Yeah. Now, uh, Dublin more expensive than Abu Dhabi or Silicon Valley in terms of living costs. I think a lot of people will find this difficult to believe.
3: Right, well I was going to say I didn't think it would come as much of a surprise to some people living in Dublin I suppose the thing is people very often in Dublin think of accommodation as being very costly Have you costly, been to Abu Dhabi, Peter? This, uh, <laughs> No, but, but Dublin, Have you been to Dublin, Silicon Valley? Dublin is getting costlier. And now this uh, an accommodation is the, usually the big ticket item. This actually strips out accommodation uh, and it bases its survey. Uh, I should mention that this is a survey by a company called ECA. And it bases this on prices paid for everyday items like dairy, meat, fish and veg. And it's saying that it's more expensive, as you said, than Abu Dhabi or Silicon Valley due to the strengthening euro and inflation. It's a pretty b- poor indictment for Dublin uh, that it ranks number 72 on the annual list of the world's most expensive cities. Uh, and I suppose th- they're suggesting that a further rise in the cost of living could hit investment by US multinationals, which obviously would be a big concern, especially to Silicon Docks. Just the Yeah, sure. But here.
2: Accommodation costs, I know this for a fact, accommodation costs in Silicon Valley, for example, right. are much, much higher than than Dublin. And you can't just simply, I know they have for the purposes of this, and they've done it for a reason because I think that they would argue that. Um In terms of expats moving around, uh, a lot of their accommodation costs and other health costs and all that kind of stuff are covered by the companies. Mm. Um, So they're just looking at the day-to-day living expenses. That's why they've done it this way. But the accommodation costs in Silicon Valley would be much higher than Dublin, even though you know Dublin has obviously uh, the costs have increased uh, substantially over the last few years.
3: Yeah, I I can't speak to Silicon Valley's accommodation costs, but I I can speak to Dublin's grocery costs for example which I, I know for a fact How much of, is your grocery are, bill every well, week? No, no, it's, uh, look listen uh, <laughs> I have a slightly different case but I know it's more expensive than London for example so it's a bad state of affairs when are, the cost of groceries are, are, are more expensive than
2: The cost London, of groceries is, in, in, in Dublin are more expensive than London based on what? Who, what evidence do we have to support that claim?
3: <laughs> based on anecdotal evidence but look it, it is, it is the state of affairs, as far as I <laughs> According
2: to know? Peter Hamilton. All right, OK. Now, Uh Commonwealth bubbles only for Spoons. What's this That's all about? That's
3: right. Uh, So Wetherspoons are gearing to sell more drinks from the UK and non-EU brewers in the run-up to Brexit. Now, Tim Martin, a famous Brexit uh, is saying that champagne will be replaced by UK and Australian sparkling wines and more UK beers will be sold to replace the wheat beers produced in France and Germany. Now, it has made some exceptions. And first of all, I should mention that customers in the Republic of Ireland will not be affected by this. Uh, Tim Martin said that because we're staying in the EU, it's an entirely different situation. So... Don't fear, you can still. uh,
2: Maybe this is just a logical uh, business. I mean, when you go to a a city abroad, I'm sure you like to sample the local fare rather than Mm. uh, maybe taking a pint of Heineken. And and uh, Wetherspoons is
3: the place to do that. (laughs) Uh,
2: (laughs) If you happen to wander into a Wetherspoons and you're a French person or a German or an American or a New Zealander or or whatever, you might fancy trying a local tipple as opposed to uh, something that's uh, maybe traveled thousands of miles. Yeah. Look, I'm sure, uh, but I would
3: imagine well, when in Rome, when in Wetherspoons. <laughs> when, yeah, when well, look, listen. Uh, it's worth noting that one one thing that will stay is Copperberg in the UK, and the reason behind that is that Copperberg uh, uh, Co- Copperberg have a brewery, or will have a brewery in the UK, and they'll be making things in the UK. So, I, I suppose that's that's allowing them stay, and may not result in any any tariffs if they do come down the line. But it, so. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to be wonderful for business if there's real champagne mm. lovers. But then again, maybe they don't go to Wedgwood's in the first place. So
2: yes, possibly not. Possibly not. Anyway, sure. We'll see how it plays out. Maybe we'll come back to that uh, in in the months ahead. Uh, Peter, thank you for joining us. Thank you Okay we're going to take a short break now When we return We'll be talking about Ireland's Labelling as a tax haven More problems for Irish ferries NAMA's annual report And the latest in the Brexit saga Back in a few moments Only 29% of us know how much we need To
1: live on in retirement Irish Life is changing that With Empower A new approach to company pensions That helps change the way Your employees think about their future For more go to IrishLifeEmpower.ie Or talk to your pension consultant We know Irish Life We are Irish Life Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015.
2: Now welcome back to this is inside business with Kieran Hancock. Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash business. I'm joined in studio now by my colleagues at the Irish Times, Cliff Taylor, Barry Hallund and Mark Paul. And we're going to be talking about everything from ranging from tax havens to NAMA and Brexit. Mark, we'll start with you. Um, a good story in this morning's Irish Time about Ireland being branded as the world's biggest corporate tax haven by academics in the United States
4: and Denmark. Tell us about that. Well it's a it's a new piece of research, a, a substantial piece of research by um by economists at the University of Berkeley in California and the University of Copenhagen and what they've done is they've um they've assessed the data of of a number of countries and they've sort of ranked um, countries in the world in relation to uh, their status as a tax haven. Now, they've they, they've defined Ireland as a tax haven on the basis that it was defined as a tax haven in some other US study 25 mm. years ago. The of Belgium and the Netherlands. And they've come to the conclusion that, under the numbers as they have crunched them, that Ireland is effectively the biggest destination um, for, for multinationals to shift profits. So, in, in effect, it's the biggest corporate tax haven in the world. So, in
2: 2016, $106 billion Worth of corporate profits were shifted to Ireland. That was more than all of the islands of the Caribbean at 97 billion. Uh, and well ahead of Singapore and the Netherlands, two other countries that tend to get bracketed as tax havens from time.
4: That's right, yeah. T- 2015 is the year they worked off, which is actually the year that an awful lot of intellectual property from tech companies was was moved into Ireland. Um, and they've used that year because that's the most recent year that they could get data for everybody mm. on, so that, so that they would have comparatives. Um, what they're basically saying is that is that multinationals um, uh, earned... Uh, $1.7 trillion of profits that year outside of their home countries and of that Forty um, percent was shifted to tax havens, and of those, of that forty percent, Ireland got by far the largest slice. With one hundred and six billion dollars um, of 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 that money moved to Ireland, um, as you say, it, 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 it's it's more than all of the Caribbean um, um, islands together. So um, you know that obviously wouldn't include Bermuda, of course, which is uh, which is in the North Atlantic. It's not a it's not a Caribbean island. Um, but in, in, in essence, I, I suppose you know it, it's gotten up the nose of the Department of Finance a little bit. They um, um, state quite categorically that that they believe Ireland is not a tax haven that it doesn't fit the definitions of a tax haven And it and came
2: just a couple of days after Yanis Varoufakis uh, who's the former Greek uh, finance minister uh, claimed that Ireland was
4: uh, a tax heaven free riding on the rest of Europe that's right the, uh, the motorbike riding former finance minister mm. of, 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 of Greece during the financial crisis and, and, and wearer of splendid leather jackets um, he yeah he was, he, he, was, he was in Munich talking in Munich at, a, at, a, at an economics conference and right at the end somebody asked him um, about Ireland and 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 they said, look, you know, your thesis um, um has been uh, pummeled because um um you know Ireland implemented a sort of austerity measures you were against, and look, they've emerged in great shape. And he said then um, that Ireland was a tax haven, free riding, and everybody else. Um, and and again, that also has upset the Department of Finance a little bit. They say Ireland is not a tax haven. They say it, it doesn't fit the definitions of a tax haven. And um, the OECD also says Ireland is not a tax haven. But some individual countries um, um um think Ireland is a tax haven. Brazil, for example, <clears throat> lists Ireland on its official list of tax havens. Um, it, it all comes down to semantics, really. Is Ireland a tax haven or is it not a tax haven? I'm not really sure whether or not it matters. Um, and what matters is that a lot of countries see us as one of the bad guys.
2: Barry, you were at the publication of the NAMA annual report today and Pascal who was there. He gave great praise for NAMA and the work they were doing. He also had something to say about this issue of Ireland being labelled as a tax haven. Yeah, well, he wasn't
0: wearing a magnificent leather jacket, but what he he said... Pretty bluntly actually is we're a small open economy and um, this is how we do business this is how we create jobs and um, the reason that uh, the multinational uh, profits in the period in, the, in, in 2015 surpassed those that went through uh, the, the Caribbean and, in, and various other um, jurisdictions was that we created more jobs and had a bigger economy and he cited the IDA annual reports for the period which shows that um, jobs in IDA sponsored companies rose from around 140,000 to 200,000 plus in that time. Um, He also argued that and fell back on the OECD and said, look, we've done everything that the OECD has asked of us. Uh, We've gotten rid of the double Irish effectively, although, you know, an element of it still remains for, for a period of time, I think. Um, and in fact, in the OECD's latest review, um, we got the highest mark possible for transparency. Yeah. So, I mean, he came... And we're part of this
2: BEPS process that the yes. OECD is working on to try and bring some framework and, and make some uh, sense of all this. Cliff Taylor, I, I just wonder if all of this is rendered moot by the fact that Donald Trump uh, has managed to... Um, get through Congress a whole uh, pile of tax reforms and essentially uh, American multinationals are going to be able to bring a lot of that money home now.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly what Donald Trump has done is going to turn the whole game upside down, I think, and uh, creates a lot of uncertainty for Ireland in the future and for the model we've used to attract inward investment, uh, which has in part been based on tax, but of course based on a lot of things as well. As Mark said, you know, is Ireland a tax haven? It's, it's, It's largely a semantic argument, really, uh, there's no single definition of what a tax haven is. Uh, just doing a bit of research earlier, generally three things are, have to be in place for a tax haven. One is a zero or low rate of tax. So we, we have offered a low rate of tax to these companies. So maybe a tick on that score. But but on the other two, uh, tax havens generally have no exchange of information with other jurisdictions. They don't uh, take part in these international tax processes. We do. Uh, And also, they generally are comprised of brass plate operations, uh, you know, companies with no real substance, whereas in general, the multinationals operating here, with some exceptions, have large operations. So, you know, the ones that have been in the firing line in the tax debate, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, they all have very substantial operations in Ireland. But it is kind of a semantic argument because there's no doubt that Ireland has been part of a chain that has allowed these companies to pay very little tax. Mm. As was demonstrated with the Apple Absolutely. case that being I, I think, uh, you know, the Apple case has put Ireland in the firing line there. So you add that, I think, to what Donald Trump has done. And you certainly have a lot of uncertainty and a changing picture for, for, for Ireland over the next few years in terms of attracting FDI. You know, we're not going to see companies pulling out overnight. A lot of them are deeply embedded here, making a lot of money. Uh, But at the same time, attracting new investment, you know, may become a tougher challenge Mm. in the the next few years.
2: Mark, maybe it's an issue of perception, but does it matter really uh, if people think we're a tax haven? Or some people think that we're a tax haven? Because as Barry said, uh, the numbers employed here by multinationals continues to go up. The investment here by multinationals continues to go up. So, you know, there hasn't really been a downside for Ireland in the past number of years from being labeled as a tax haven in many ways. Well,
4: look. We we live in a world of multilateral diplomacy. And we're right. in the middle of Brexit negotiations, where we're reliant upon um, not the not the the goodwill of our European partners, that's probably a little bit patronising to our own state, but certainly their cooperation to get the best deal that we can in relation to the border. Mm. Um, And and, and there are other matters that that, that we will continue to rely on our European partners in relation to. um, And and if we are seen, it's it's not so much what we are, are we a tax haven, are we not? It's, It's what do we do and what do we facilitate? And if we're seen to be facilitating a system that robs tax... From other countries. And that's really the problem. It's not our low rate. Um, and 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 I noticed Pascal Donahue, Barry mentioned earlier when I was chatting to him earlier on this afternoon, that Pascal Donahue, when this thing was raised today, um, um, at Pac he 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 said that, you know, he defended Ireland's corporate tax rate. It's not about our rate, it's about Ireland eroding the tax base of other countries. And that doesn't win you many friends. Um, and it doesn't win you many allies. And when you've got uh, a a long road ahead of you with a lot of multilateral diplomatic issues to be uh, negotiated, and Ireland needs as many friends as it can get, um, you know, if you've got one hand in your neighbour's pocket, they don't thank you for it.
2: Yeah. My dude, the Netherlands always uh, tends to feature highly in these uh, rankings as well, Uh, Cliff, doesn't it, 2016, Oxfam? Ranked Ireland sixth as a tax haven. It was a table led by Bermuda, the Netherlands, Switzerland and Singapore all ahead of us.
1: Yeah, and you could probably stick Malta in there fairly high up the list as well these days. Certainly, uh, you know, have we pushed the envelope too far or did we push the envelope too far in the past in terms of, as Mark said, facilitating these companies to to move Mm. money around the world? Maybe we did, particularly arrangements like the Double Irish uh, I, I think allowed as became clear Apple to engage and yeah. so when it comes to engage in these extraordinary manoeuvres Now France we
2: know are very upset with uh, with Ireland over this uh, issue but are they being a bit two faced because their own yeah. sort of effective tax rates you know when you take out a lot of deductions and so on their, their effective tax rate is pretty low
1: Yeah I mean everyone's been two faced here I think because you know Ireland may have been guilty here but pretty much every country around the world has has uh, tweaked its tax rate had special arrangements France has a lot of special economic zones and areas where mm. you can get low tax rates and, and low effective tax rates it's also subsidizes its uh, you know its own state industries with, with with money over the years so you know everyone is everyone is guilty I guess as charged in this in this game uh, not least the Americans who had the the basic tax system, which encouraged this to take place for many years, and no doubt, fellows trotting up to Capitol Hill uh, to lobby uh, successive presidents have stymied every effort to reform, until ironically, uh, President Trump came in and, and changed the system.
4: Yeah. Well, you'd wonder, you know, does Ireland have a plan B? I mean, I mean, yesterday the. Um uh, uh, the IDA Ireland launched its 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 sort of mid-year uh, performance review. And, and its Good numbers. And in last year. Good numbers, yeah. Um, um, I, I think in the first half of the year, they estimated that um, job announcements by IDA client companies would be about 11,300 new jobs. That's ahead of 11,000 for the same period last year. But I asked Martin Shanahan, um, the chief executive of Ida, if you know the rhetoric, the, the bellicose rhetoric from from the White House under Trump, um, if that you know over tax and over mm-hmm. other issues, if that has affected, and he seemed to indicate that it has. He says it hasn't shown up in the numbers yet. But he, he he mentioned a conversation that he had with the chief executive of a U.S. company, where they said that given what Trump was saying and what he was doing, um, and by reforming their corporate tax system, that um, in in the words of that executive, they'd have to run the numbers again. And he said that there's been a slowdown in decision making by U.S. investors in relation to, to to coming to Ireland because they want to wait and see how the dust settles on the corporate tax. Uh, changes in the US, um, so Trump. I mean, look, you know, you know, like him, or or or, or, or as not many do, or lump him as as, as many people do. Um, and his actions are having something of an impact, and they're being felt in there's the office offices. Of, yeah, there's no doubt, in, and it's been felt in the offices of the
1: IDA in Dublin.
2: Yeah, Cliff, uh, the European Commission has a Plan B, and the Plan B is to have a harmonised corporate tax rate across Europe.
1: Yeah, possibly an even greater danger to Ireland because uh, taken to its extreme. Uh, this would mean uh, that all the profits of the big multinationals would be counted as as one lump in Europe, and the revenues distributed across where it was generated, uh, based on where, mm. uh, well, based on. Still to be decided, but based at, at least in large part on where the sales were made. Sure, and Fra- is, France and Germany seem to like that. They idea. do indeed. Yes. <laughs> seem to like this idea. <laughs> they do, and not surprisingly, uh, because the big countries are going to gain out of it, and the small countries are going to lose. And we've seen some countries starting to move ahead of the game. Uh, the Italians, for example, imposing local taxes on some on some of these big companies, and a proposal by the Commission which has been shot down but is likely to uh, to resurface to do that. So I think there's no doubt uh, that we face a squeeze on. Two two sides on one side in terms of attracting investment uh, as Mark has said because the game has changed and Trump is uh, making uh, the the boardrooms of America rethink where mm. investment' got to go in future because companies want to stay on side of the you know with, with our national government as well and on the other side a squeeze on our tax revenues because uh, everyone's starting to look at uh, the huge increase we've had in corporate tax here in the last few years exchequers everywhere are squeezed for cash. And uh, people are saying, oh, hold on now, you know, we'd like a bit of that. We'd like a bit of that action as well.
2: You're listening to the Irish Times. Uh, Barry, some good news for the Irish Exchequer in terms of NAMA uh, and the work it's doing is due to wind up in 2020. And their latest analysis running out of the figures suggests that they're going to deliver an increased surplus of the order of three and a half billion euro.
0: Yes, that is uh, that is hooked, um, as usual, on, you know, favourable uh, conditions remaining and as we've just heard here there are a lot of things that suggest those favourable conditions may not last too much longer um mm. or we certainly can't i certainly wouldn't be betting 3.5 billion that they that that they will but so what exactly far, is
2: NAMA doing now i mean most of the big creditors surely are are, are gone from NAMA they've exited uh, NAMA most of the big uh you know blocks of sites and so forth assets that they had on their books have been sold no
0: um no, not quite. No, they they have a couple of hundred um creditors remaining. Um and the, the the figure that's outstanding escapes me. But the point that they that Brendan McDonough, the chief executive, made today is that many of those people are continuing to work with the agency and in fact are now at the point where they either can either, either are or will be able to repay their debts in full at par, as he puts it. In other words, the the, the original amount of money that they borrowed from the bank back during the crazy period plus the interest that's due on that, they will be able to repay all of that uh, to the state, which bailed them out effectively and kept them afloat. Um, So NAMA is certainly very pleased with that. They have been selling assets, um, and there are a few more asset sales to come. But the emphasis very much from Frank Daly, the chairman, is that we have a lot of valuable sites that have the potential to deliver real social and economic benefits to the state. And uh, we have to make some careful and slow decisions in relation to these. Uh, and we certainly can't be doing anything until the proper planning and proper infrastructure mm. is in place.
2: This sounds like it might go beyond 2020.
0: Yes, it does, doesn't it? Uh, except that the Minister of Finance, Pascal who was very clear that he, uh, the government sees no reason for now to go beyond the, the 2020 date that he himself has apparently put forward in the past. What Pascal seems to be suggesting is that, look, you know, we're going to have this debate about these valuable sites. Some of them are along the side of the proposed metro, so that is going to take some time before they come to fruition. But you're also talking about something like the Irish glass bottle Mm. site in Ringsend, not too far from here, um, which has enormous potential, whichever way you look at it. Um, And what Pascal wants to do is he wants to have the debate and he wants the government to to think and and weigh up the options for all these sites. But he seems to be indicating that uh, House... Building Finance Ireland. This was the, the the organization that was proposing the budget and about which we haven't heard a whole pile since. Um, that that would now be an avenue for taking a lot of the expertise built up in NAMA on housing finance and all the rest of it, and that that would basically suck in some of these people because that's you know that's the source of the expertise and that would continue uh, the work that uh, NAMA has started at the resi- or at least at the residential side.
1: Yeah, Cliff. In your opinion, has NAMA done a good job? Gosh, big question. Um, I think, you, given the fears when uh, the assets were moved over to NAMA, that we were in the hole for further billions of euro, uh, and that when NAMA was wound up in the years ahead, that uh, you know there was going to be another big, big hole in the state's finances. That that you'd have to say, yes, it has in 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 a general way. Now, of course, there's been a lot of controversy by the way it's operated in some areas. Uh, And I suppose some kind of uneasiness about the way that it's allowed a number of developers who are deeply in the hole to kind of generally, Mm. gradually uh, build themselves back out of trouble and kind of leap back into action uh, as the economy... uh, I think the accusation has been made as well Well,
2: that they they sold properties in Ireland uh, too cheaply in the early days.
1: Yeah, and some in the UK possibly as well. Uh, And I guess you're not, you know, absolutely, you're not going to get all those calls right. But I think... You have to look back at the kind of the uh, the fears that were that were that were in place when NAMA was set up. That we were kind of hiving out a load of bank of bad loans, and there was another big there was another big hole in in those that were going to hit the state. You know that that hasn't happened. Yeah. Uh, so so in that sense, uh, some relief there. And you know the, the 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 surplus. I I guess the chips have fallen for NAMA in the last few years. That's the way it goes the surplus was going to be 500, then a billion, then two billion. And now they're talking about three and a half billion. Now, that is a surplus after an initial write down of, what was it, 70, 70 billion plus. I think we, you know, we have to put that in context. Well, I think it was,
2: uh, they took on, I think, something of the order of 72 billion in yeah. loans and paid 32 or 34. Yeah, there, but so it's,
1: it's half that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, much, yeah,
2: um, yeah. Okay, let's talk about Brexit. Um, this is the story that keeps on giving, if you like, for the media yeah. at least. Uh, lots of twists and turns. It looks very much a uh, Theresa May... Uh, got a key vote through the House of Commons yesterday. And it looks very much, not without a lot of compromise, but it, it looks very much as if we're heading towards a soft Brexit.
1: Yeah, I mean, there was extraordinary scenes in the Commons yesterday. Uh, I, I suppose uh, in these, uh, these PC days, there aren't smoke-filled rooms anymore. But there were a lot of meetings. In a lot of hot and, air, though, A man. lot of hot air, a lot of meetings in the conference rooms, a lot of meeting in Theresa May's office where it kind of, an hour, half an hour before the vote, groups of... And it was a
2: ministerial resignation?
1: Groups, yeah, indeed. Uh, groups of MPs were were, uh, were parading in to be given assurances. Uh, and a few hours later, uh, one group felt they'd been given one assurance and the Brexit group, you know, the Remain group and the Brexit group felt it had been given another assurance. And then I think they
2: decided between them that actually what she was saying to them, uh, it, it kind of all fitted together.
1: Yeah. There was well, no contradiction there. I think there's it's st- still a bit of argument about what exactly happened. But I think... The bottom line is that uh, it's clear now that there is a majority in the in the Commons, um, and certainly in the Lords for a softer version of Brexit.
2: What does that mean? What, what will a softer and version? That, well, of uh, mean?
1: and that and that this is a big constraint on Theresa May now, and that when she goes to Brussels and says, "Look, I'm,", I'm or she had gone to Brussels and say, "Look, No Deal's better than a mm. than a bad deal," because she had
2: said last year, um, "We want out of the customs union, out yeah, of the yeah. single market." And we don't want any jurisdiction yeah. from the European yeah, Court. Absolutely. So
1: she said, "No deal is better than a bad deal," and it's clear now that there's no backing in, in in Parliament for that approach. But there's still a real question about how we get from where we are now to where to to some kind of deal that might be done with Europe. All of the concentration so far has been: what can London agree itself? What can be agreed in the Conservative Party? And none of this really has has uh, has has evolved negotiations with Europe yet. The only way that you could see a a deal being done. Theresa May has already backtracked on some of her so-called red lines in relation to how much money the UK will pay Europe in the years ahead. And the only way way really you can see a deal being done is for a lot more of those red lines to go. So, for example, if the UK wants to stay in the single market, it's going to have to accept the rules. Uh, If it wants to stay in, like, Norway in the European economic area, for example, there would be real questions for Britain, particularly on freedom of movement, which is a really key thing in the in the Brexit vote. If it wants to stay in the customs union, there are other rules and regulations it has to face. And then you're into the question, well, why bother with Brexit at all if you're going to, um, if you're going to do that? So yes, what's happened is there's now a clear political move in the UK away from a hard Brexit towards a software Brexit. But it's re- still really unclear what that's going to mean or, or how it's actually going to be negotiated with Europe. Real problems still in doing that, I think. So I think either in the June summit or heading up to October, we're still going to see some fireworks, uh, maybe a breakdown of the talks, you know who knows what, what way it's going to go
2: yeah, and obviously a lot of play here in Ireland uh, the UK big trading partner for us, but we don't want that hard border uh, between north and southern it doesn't look uh, at the moment anyway at least as if uh, as if that's going to
1: happen it doesn't but it also looks very hard to find a way to avoid it um, you know the, the negotiation still has to be done, and as well as that, there's the huge question of north of east west trade of trade from Ireland to the UK. Uh, and a report from the Department of uh, Business and Innovation today saying that real fears in the Irish business community about tariffs, about customs checks, about documentation, about all these costs and hits on their competitiveness which they could face, and disruption to their supply chains after Brexit. You know, none of those. It's amazing to think that none of those questions have really been answered yet. Mm. Uh, we've had a bit of talk about how the border thing might be solved, but there's been no real substantive negotiation on how the UK will trade with the, with the EU after Brexit. And, uh, and ironically they enough, they do I, to leave in March next year. Yeah.
2: Having said in, in the run up to the referendum vote, uh, a lot of Brexiteers were saying, you know, we'd be able to go off and do our own deals with the likes of the United States and China and the Commonwealth countries yeah. and so forth. And of course, Donald, Donald Trump, Ameris uh, as the next president of the United States and he's imposed uh, tariffs now on various goods uh, coming from yeah. Europe.
1: I think it's, look, it's all been shown to be nonsense. Uh, all, all, all this all this Brexit talk of a great new trading future for Britain and you know ships sailing off to uh, China and planes flying off to America with British goods you know the gains from those kind of deals are relatively are relatively small mm. and the losses in terms of trade with the EU by far the UK's biggest partner are potentially huge. Uh, there's no way you can compare the two. There, this is an economic hit, and the only question is. How can it be minimised? The Brexiteers have, have have talked it up, have spun it around, have have made it up for their own benefit, really. And one of the extraordinary things it's it's taken so long for British business to really front up on this. Uh, we heard Paul Drescher, they are going to have the CBI today, really having a go. But it it does appear, you know, that British business has been afraid to upset the government, has been nervous about the mm. political temperature in the UK, realises that. The people voted for Brexit. That the two main parties were both in favour mm. of it, and just hasn't really started to point out the the, the chaos that that this is going to cause.
4: Marcus, the Irish government played
1: a good hand to date in in, in the Brexit negotiations.
4: We don't know yet because uh, we, we we don't know until 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 we see what's finally agreed. Um, um, it's it's difficult to know. Look, I, I suppose. Ireland has been consistent. It has maintained at least a veneer um, um, or the appearance to outsiders of, of, of having a position well thought through. They haven't fallen into really, they don't appear to have fallen into any of the UK government's traps, like at the very start, if you remember, the Brexit negotiations the UK government was trying to say the border is your problem you guys solve it you guys come up with a solution and I remember Leo Varadkar at the time he had only just become a Taoiseach and he went no hang on a second um, um, it's not for us to, to solve that problem that, 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 that's a problem for you guys to solve you, you, you guys are the ones leaving um, I think the you you know you know for Ireland the scariest thing and uh, just alluding to, to something that Cliff has uh, said is, is you know it's, it's clear now that there are no real practical benefits for the UK economically in leaving the European Union and what that does is that lays the bear the true heart of Brexit, which is ideological. It's got nothing to do with improving people's lives or improving people's economies. It's pure ideology and you can never trust an ideologue because you never know what they're going to do because they will always remain faithful to their ideology and nothing less. So I wouldn't put a pass to Brexit here as to launch some sort of a hand grenade into the talks, whether it's now, whether it's just before the October summit mm-hmm. or whether it's right before they leave and the ramifications of that and how we deal with that that'll, that'll, and how that plays out for Ireland, that'll be the most important thing.
2: Barry, finally, Irish Ferries, uh, more problems for us in terms of this uh, new ship that's going to all singing, all dancing new ship that's coming from Germany and is going to deliver a great service at some point in the future. But unfortunately, not this summer for thousands of Irish families who are planning to go abroad.
0: Yes, it's 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 coming from Germany, but it is not going to France. Um, uh, this is the, the WB8. It's being built by a a German company. I'm just going, going, going to go by the, the initials and it's FGS. Um, and they've delayed. They've twice told Irish Ferries this summer that the ship won't be ready on time. The eight was originally due to start sailing to sail earlier in the summer from Dublin to Cherbourg. That got kiboshed. And uh, this week, um, Irish Continental Group, owner of Irish Ferries, once again announced: "Look, we we have to cancel all scheduled French sailings by the WB8 because FGS." have indicated to us that there are further delays, we don't want to take a chance on any further uncertainty for our customers, therefore we are offering alternative births on the uh, Oscar Wilde and uh, you notice they're all literary characters Um, and um, um, uh, there are compensation for those who don't take them up and an alternative Route using the ironically in light of the conversation we've just had the UK land bridge whereby you sail from Ireland to Britain, drive across Britain and sail from Britain to the continent and they will pay your fuel costs in driving across Britain as well as everything else if, if you take that option apparently uh, Eamon Rothwell who spoke to the Irish Times yesterday seemed to think that a small number of people would take the land bridge um, a far greater number are opting for the, the Oscar Wilde even though that you know, wouldn't necessarily be ideal if you've, if you've planned, depending on, you know, what sailing time. Yeah, you might, have to, WBAs, day, so you might have to add or or the a day either before or at the end of the year. Yeah, it could get very messy. Um, how, did it come to the, how
2: did it come to pass, though? Having missed one deadline, how did, how did it come to pass that Irish ferries were confident enough that they could meet the revised deadline? I mean, how. Surely they would have done their due diligence and, uh, you know, because there's so much has to be done in advance of a ship uh, being allowed to take on board passengers. They have to do um, sea tests. They have to, you know, go through various uh, health and safety uh, checks and so forth.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I I think it's the length of time taken for the checks. That's the, that, that, that is part of the issue here. In other words, it's not so much a question of, well, you know, you get the ship on the 29th of July, and it starts sailing on the thirtieth. You have to do. But well, people tests, might yeah. be
2: willing to forgive them for a one missed yeah. deadline. But I mean, did they drop the ball after that? Should they not have at that point maybe just cancelled the whole summer season?
0: Well, I think that's I think that's a valid question. And they're saying what we did do in the circumstance was we held back on um, we, we held back on selling berths on the Oscar Wilde just in case of this eventuality, uh, having been I think I think uh, Rotwell used the phrase once bitten or bitten once, you know, the version of that well-trodden-out cliche, I think. And what they did was they deliberately held on to space they could have sold in the Oscar Wilde. And that is why they are now able to offer these alternative parts to their to their customers. So, Whether they went far enough in going down to FGS's uh, docks, wherever they are, and, and looking at the progress, I'm sure they're doing that anyway. Um, I don't know, but they they do seem to have taken some steps in advance to mm. mitigate a possible second shot.
2: Take us through the numbers, how many people affected in total? Uh, I think it's in the order
0: of um, six or ten thousand, somewhere between six and ten
2: thousand. What's going to cost Irish Ferries?
0: And the cost to Irish Ferries is the they've already said that the, the first wave of cancellations will cost them around two and a half million. There are industry analysts out there saying the second wave, which is you know covers a much greater period. That's in and around four and a half million. Irish ferries aren't commenting formally on that. So about
2: figure. seven million in total.
0: It's about seven million in total. Irish ferries certainly aren't coming out and saying, you know, that they're, they're, they're staying formally silent on the four and a half million, but I think there may be a tacit acceptance that that figure is is in and around, is in the ballpark.
2: And compensation being offered to passengers?
0: Yeah, well, you, you, get, the, you, you get your alternative birth, your money back, plus you also get an extra 150 voucher against a future sailing with the company.
2: And if you had to stay an extra night, uh, let's say either before or at the end of your holiday, are you compensated for that as well?
0: Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I think they I think that is covered under EU legislation anyway, and I think that they they, they would have to, right? Okay,
2: uh, Cliff, you want to come in? Yeah, no, I was, are I was, uh, you were you one of the affected? Uh, no, I wasn't passengers. I, I
1: wasn't, uh, and uh, but uh, having done the having done the trip to France thing for many years, uh, when the when the family were younger. I think the problem for families is, you know, you might think a day's delay either way is no big deal on a, on a holiday, but or, or a couple of days. But the problem is, a lot of these uh, families will have booked campsites in France, or t- typically in sure. France, some part of France. And typically, these campsites are not flexible on their on their bookings. They book Saturday, Saturday, Sunday to Sunday, Friday to Friday, or whatever. And you know, everything will have been planned like a military operation mm-hmm. to get there at the at the. At the at the mm. required time, and
2: plus you got to uh, organise time off work, and exactly
1: all it, of that. It happened
4: happened to me this summer. I only not with a boat, but with a plane. Ryanair Reiner, um, Ryanair Reiner changed the uh, dates of my. I'm going to a campsite in Italy, which I'm yeah. flying to. Ryanair changed the dates. Um, uh, uh, I'll cancel the flight and, and, and moved it to, a, to to a different time, and I wouldn't have made the campsite in time. I had to, you know, change my flight um, uh, uh, to fly a, a, a previous day, spend the night in a hotel, and then go to my campsite. Um, so, uh, yeah, as, as Cliff mm. says, these sort of changes in travel arrangements can really screw things up. Very very and what excuse did Ryanair give? Yeah, they didn't give any excuse at all. Um, I think it, under EU regulations, it was it was far enough outside of the time where um, uh, uh, they're, they're just allowed to make a cancellation without giving me any compensation. They made no excuse. They just rebooked me onto a different, completely unsuitable flight. When I got onto them and kicked up a bit, they kicked me onto another one back the previous day. Um, so I've got an extra night in Bologna, I suppose, which isn't uh, which isn't the worst thing in the world. Um, um, and uh, the food capital uh, of Italy. Yeah, months. I have to, but but but, I, but, but <laughs> I'll, I'll have I'll have to right? go back to the airport. I'll have to go back to the airport the next day to pick up the pre-booked rental car and then I'll be able to get out of my campsite so um, all, is, all is well. Alright, well look
2: I'm, I'm sure you'll have a good time nonetheless. Um, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Peter Hamilton, Cliff Taylor, Mark Paul and Barry Halloran. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.